And it's 25 minutes after the hour on a now theological Thursday because we're joined by Pastor Robbie Pruitt. Robbie's an Anglican pastor, lives in Virginia, his church is in Fairfax, and he is the executive director of Preserving Bible Times, which gives him an extra level of qualification to do what he's about to do, which is to educate us and and expand our understanding of Scripture. A little context here. Robbie, I love it when you go into the Old Testament because mm-hmm. to me it's always been like a like a dark cave. You go in with a torch and you see these, these faint paintings on the wall and a few carvings here and there, and you've got to put it all together and make sense of it. And uh, you help us do that because you tie it in with the New Testament. It's all one big umbrella. And this particular story about Samuel and Eli is particularly moving because this is what? This is would be 10th century B.C., nine, the 900s B.C., the end of the judges who held sway in Israel for, what, three, four hundred years since they, they, they crossed the Jordan and started conquering peoples. And Samuel was the last of the judges, was he not? Yeah, yeah. So a priest and a prophet and a judge and uh, a, one who listens to God, speaks for God, leads for God. And uh, yeah, he's the last of the great judges before Israel rebelled and sought after a king. Well, it's good to be with you, Jim and David. Thanks for having me on the Broken Road. Good to I, be with you. I as think always. of Samuel as like an itinerant preacher because he he had a circuit, and and as I call recall, he rode a, a a donkey around. Is that is that is that fact factual? I imagine he could have. I mean, he's the anointer of both Saul and David as mm-hmm. king. Mm-hmm. But I got that notion yeah. from somewhere. I was wondering if it was actually in. Yeah. In, in Samuel or, or in the first or second, he was must have been, well, he give, give us a little of his life history because he had a, had a rocky start to life, didn't he? It, it, he did, and it starts all in, in first and second Samuel. And it's one of the great songs of the Old Testament is Hannah's song because Hannah is barren. Uh, she's one of uh, at least two wives of Elkanah. Uh, Samuel's father, and Samuel prays, uh, Hannah prays for Samuel, prays for a child. She is barren. She can't have uh, a male heir. She can't have children. And that and, was the primary purpose of a woman. I hate yeah. to say that, but that's that's what they were for back then. Yeah. You're in a patriarchal society, and uh, the men kind of carry on the family name and help provide for the family. And that male heir takes the uh, father's place and continues the family name. So, yes, we're in around 1080 uh, B.C., and uh, we're in Shiloh, and the Ark of the Covenant is there. You're right to mention we've just gotten through the history of Israel, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then you've got Joshua, Judges, Ruth. And then First Samuel. So we're dealing with the history books, the history of Israel. And it's some of the most important pieces of history in all of the Bible because it establishes David's kingship and uh, the great king that's coming in the lineage of David. And, of course, Samuel anoints David as king. So Hannah's barren. She prays for a child. You can see all of this in First Samuel. First and Second Samuel are normally, uh, or usually, they're one work and they're divided because of their length. And then we have that divide of First and Second Samuel in our Bibles. That, that is their length on a scroll, correct? That's right. That would limit That's it. That's right. Yeah. 
So we see the family of Elkanah and Hannah's vow, Hannah's prayer. All of this happens in chapter 1. And then we see uh, or read Hannah's song in chapter 2, where Hannah prays and says, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. And it, it, it's just a sweet song after like a, a comedy of errors a little bit with Hannah and her husband Elkanah because she she's so downtrodden that she she wants to have this child and she's praying for this child. And Elkanah says, aren't I greater than many sons? Mm-hmm. I mean, typical... <laughs> male ego affl- inflation that somehow we're we're enough for our wives <laughs> or we're we're sufficient and so you know this this guy I kind of laugh at him because you know his ego but then at the same time I can kind of identify with it this this reminds me a little bit of Zechariah and Elizabeth in the New Testament the the, the parents yeah. of John the Baptist where Elizabeth was barren and and that would make a woman an object of scorn and derision in the culture. So Hannah had a, a tough life. Absolutely, and and you get uh, kind of tend like a little bit of hearkening back to e- even uh, Rachel and Leah. Yes, and the conflict between the wives when one is bearing a male heir to their hus- for their husband, and the other one's not. And so, what does that do to? Hannah. I mean, it it puts her in a place of depression. It puts her in a place of feeling inferior. It puts her in a place of mourning. And so when she's singing this song, you get, you know, you get the basis of the foundation of all these many songs throughout the Bible. I mean, uh, Moses has got a song. You mentioned Zechariah. He's got a song. Elizabeth has a song. There's Mary's song. And all of them are in this great tradition of prayers and songs in the Old Testament. And so 1 Samuel 2 is the foundation and even sounds extremely similar to Elizabeth and Mary's song. When God is faithful, they sing. This is this is this is long though. This is like ten verses. I wanted to say let's let's read it, but that might take a little too much time. But let, I'll, I'll go through just the first couple of verses. Uh, Hannah prayed and said, "This is in First Samuel uh, at the beginning of uh, chapter two. My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you." Mm. She was committed, and and she was she was also desperate. Yeah, yeah, and you know I had the privilege to visit Shiloh in 2015 on an Israel study tour with Columbia International University and Jerusalem University College, and this was before I had my second daughter Hannah, and I named my second daughter Hannah, Mm -hmm. which means grace, and I named my first daughter. Grace, which of course means grace, um, named after not only Hannah in the Old Testament, but Anna the prophetess in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. And so I was trying to capture these two brilliant, um, deep, prayerful, uh, faithful women in the Bible, both Old and New Testament. And while we were visiting Shiloh, our professor was lecturing us on the archaeology in Shiloh, 
And he began to talk about how a lot of the scholars thought that when the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant dwelled in Shiloh, that many people thought it was on top of the, the mound or top of the tell is what they call the archaeological compounding of layers. And as we're sitting in this overlook, overlooking this kind of glass theater, overlooking to the north of Shiloh, he began to talk about the orientation of the tabernacle, the size of the tabernacle, the tent. And he said, many people believe it's up here, but there are many scholars that believe it's right down there. And he pointed, and there's this flat area in the north that's perfectly sized for the tabernacle as it's instructed in, in Exodus and in Numbers. And the way that this is described in how the tabernacle is supposed to be built, and God um, gives the command for the first art, art, um, art institution of this God. God is uh, commissioning the first art piece, which mm -hmm. is the tabernacle. And so the measurements of this flat area in the north right below the mountain where it would be uh, shielded actually from the winds. And the professor began to point it out and talk about the archaeology and talk about the orientation. And he said that Jewish women still come who are barren and they pray like Hannah prayed for Samuel in the very spot. And as he's teaching, we see the woman walk down to where the Holy of Holies would have been, kneel down and pray. It was the most beautiful picture of this cultural tradition verifying the archaeological evidence of where this tabernacle would have dwelt. It is beautiful, and, and to think that, that here in the West we just lose sight of, of the, 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 the firm and, and everlasting attachment to uh, the, the Hebrew Bible, the first five books, and, 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 uh, and their history as a people. And it, it means something to them, and it's, it's nice to see such core beliefs carried on even today. Yeah. So Hannah, when she's praying to have Samuel, praying to have this child, Elkanah says in uh, chapter 1, verse 8, this is this humorous verse, then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better than 10 sons? <laughs> And the, and the answer is no. <laughs> no. No. I imagine he got the look there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the Bible is such a funny book. I mean, you know this is real. I mean, as a husband, you know, I, 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 can, I can tell you when my ego gets out of check. Mm -hmm. and, and we're not enough for our wives. I mean, our wives need the Lord and they need... You know, motherhood is part of their call. But the the interesting thing about Hannah is that she dedicates, no sooner than the child is weaned, she dedicates the boy Samuel to the service of the Lord in the tabernacle. And so she takes the greatest gift of all and hands it over hands him over to God. She took him away from Elkanah. Yeah, and she took him away from herself and and gave him 
to the service of the Lord in the tabernacle. Now, if you don't see Mary in this image of bearing a firstborn son and then handing him over Mm -hmm. to God's service, don't miss the parallels here between the boy Samuel and his mother Hannah and Mary and Jesus. Because it's a similar handoff as as he's dedicated in the temple. We just got through the Holy Family Day where the circumcision of Jesus and the Holy Name, where Jesus is dedicated in the temple, and there he meets Simeon and Anna, and Jesus is circumcised. He's given the name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then, of course, Mary and Joseph flee to Egypt, and they are obedient in raising Jesus up, and then Mary releases him to the service of God as the tabernacle, as the true tabernacle. Jesus is the true tabernacle. Where Samuel served the priest Eli in the tabernacle, Jesus is the true high priest, and he is the tabernacle embodied. And so these parallels and this rootedness in the Old Testament. So Hannah makes this little linen ephod for the boy, sends him off to be with Eli, the priest, and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who are pagan. I mean, these guys are taking the sacrifices, and they're striking the sacrifices with three pronged forks, and they're bringing out the boiled meat before it's rendered, and they're eating the choice fat for themselves when it's dedicated when it's supposed to be dedicated to God, supposed to be sacrificed, the first fruits to God, the very best. These guys are sleeping with the women who are serving in the tabernacle. Uh, they're corrupt uh, to no end. Eli, Eli's deaf to God. Eli the priest who, is supposed to be uh, tending the tabernacle, is deaf to God. I mean, it it says it in chapter 3 that the word of the Lord was rare in those days. People weren't hearing from God. And Eli himself, whose number one job is to listen and to communicate for God as a priest, to mediate between God and his people, he doesn't hear from God. It's this same Eli when Hannah comes into the tabernacle to pray to have a son, he thinks she's drunk. <laughs> he, he doesn't recognize prayer when he sees it. So you've got a priest who doesn't recognize what prayer looks like, but he does understand drunkenness, probably from his own mm-hmm. sons. Mm-hmm. And so there's this dialogue, and she says, no, I'm not drunk, I'm praying. And then, of course, Hannah's faithfulness to make the vow to God, to sing her beautiful song in chapter 2, to come and dedicate the boy Samuel uh, for ministry. And you see this in the latter half of chapter 2 of 1 Samuel. And then the boy is ministering before the Lord. He's ministering before Eli. And it says in in chapter 3, verse 1, And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation. So, God's not speaking. Um, well, I would put it this way: God's always speaking, 
but the people were not hearing God speak. In the ESV version, it says there was no frequent vision. Yeah, yeah. And you, much you much like the intertestamental of, period. Yeah, where, and where you hear no echoes prophets. of even Joshua, where, where there is no vision, the people perish. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. And so people are dying on the vine because they're not hearing from God. And Samuel, he hears God call. And this is the beautiful story that most people are familiar with, that Samuel hears from God once, doesn't know because no one's taught him. So the people, the very people who are supposed to be developing the leaders around them, the priest and the priest's son, Eli and Hophni and Phinehas, they are taking this treasure of this young boy who is dedicated to the tabernacle by his faithful mother, Hannah, and they're squandering the opportunity that Hannah has literally put in their hands by giving them Samuel. So they're not teaching the boy as they should. They're not training him up. They're not teaching him how to listen to God. All of these things are happening, and Samuel hears from God and goes to Eli. And, and he just assumes Eli is talking to him. You called? Eli says, I didn't call you. Go back and lie down a second time. Surely you called. The little boy hears, Samuel, Samuel. A third time. You called? Samuel, Samuel. Surely you called. Eli finally gets it. Oh, it's God. Next time you hear the voice, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. See, that's so, where we get the phrase, the third time's the charm. Hmm? Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, I, can, can you, is it fair to extrapolate from this? Now, this, this painfully reminds me of the society we're looking at today. Yeah. Is, can, can we extrapolate from this story? And, and does it suggest that the entire Hebrew culture was in decline? Hmm. It, absolutely. I mean, this is, this is the mantra in Judges. For those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So in Joshua and Judges, the conquering and settling of the promised land, you see the corruption of the priesthood here. You see, um, you, you see the, the corruption of even the judges. I mean, you get people like Samson, and you, you see corruption even in the judges. So uh, the Cultural Study Bible has some good commentary on this. I, I love to read the Cultural Backgrounds Study Bible, which gives you some of the biblical context. And one of the commentary pieces here, it says, the key to successful kingship is the recognition that Yahweh is the true king. Therefore, a king's reign must reflect Yahweh's values. And we see that we must God must be our king, first of all. This is why uh, later in Samuel's life, when his own sons are corrupt, they, they are judges. Samuel um, commissions his sons as judges, but they're corrupt judges. You can almost see that where Elkanah didn't have the privilege of raising his son up because he was dedicated in the tabernacle, which should have been a safe place. But it wasn't, because Samuel was surrounded by Eli and his corrupt sons, 
And therefore, he's discipled in many ways by Eli and by his corrupt sons. And you almost see the sins of the father being passed down. You almost see Samuel, or at least the corruption of Samuel's sons, repeating the corruption of of Eli's sons. Now, the word of the Lord that God gives Samuel in chapter 3, when Samuel finally says, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening, this is the beginning of Samuel being commissioned as a prophet of God. It, It actually says it in the text that in those days, God spoke to Samuel in Shiloh. In those days, Samuel is um, God's servant. And you can see this in verse 21. Then the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. This is the beginning of the establishment of Samuel. Uh, Samuel's given the word that Eli and his sons will be judged. We know that Eli's sons are are killed, and even um, Eli and his corruptness, when he's hearing about his son's death, the mention of the ark of God being captured, Eli falls over and breaks his neck and dies. And so this is the end of, the, of Eli and his sons and their corrupt leadership. Samuel is judging, and when the people of Israel ask for a king, Samuel begins to complain to God. And, so, and God says to Samuel, what are you complaining about? They're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. So anytime we put ourselves in leadership above God or put ourselves in our power before God, we are putting ourselves in the place of God. And our leadership fails when God's not our king first. And that's the sin of, well, it's the sin of Elkanah and his unfaithfulness, <laughs> or his treatment of his wife, his oblivion. It's the sin of Eli and his sons, and it's the sin of Samuel's sons. It's the sin of any leader who doesn't put God first. Well, this this reminds me of uh, much later in history, and in, in, in Europe in particular, the divine right of kings, where they, they, they think that the kingship was bestowed on certain individuals by God. And yet, in so many instances, the king himself is corrupt, and this, this, is, this is hubris. Uh, he, he thinks he's, he's serving in place of God, but not under him. Yeah, I mean, and God judges the people by giving them King Saul. Saul's a judgment. He's not a good king. He looks like he should be. His appearance is right, but his heart is far from God. And even after Samuel's death, Saul, Saul's playing God in his kingship, number one. I mean, he makes sacrifice. He takes on a priestly role. And Samuel corrects and rebukes him. And even after Saul's death, he consults a medium, which he had prohibited in the land. Mm-hmm. And so he, even here, out of all the people Samuel could have, I mean, Saul could have call, summoned up by the medium, he summons up Samuel mm-hmm. <laughs> and not God himself. He, he doesn't want to hear from God still. So he's not consulting God, he's consulting a medium. And instead of calling up uh, inquiring of God, he inquires of, of Samuel. 
And again, Samuel gets it right because he is someone who hears from God. He is a good judge. He is a good prophet. He is a good servant of the Lord. And in juxtaposition to this, King Saul's a mess. And then we see before Samuel's death, of course, he anoints King David as king. And that's the man after God's own heart. And so this is the king that the Messiah comes in the lineage of. This, this is a long chain of deficient fathers because David was yeah. not a good father either, nor was yeah. Saul, nor was Samuel. And, and you know, this could have been a John Grisham novel and made yeah. a great movie, but it's in the Bible. And, and uh, in, in the books of Samuel, one and two, uh, and take a look at it. We can learn a lot. And, and now, you, is, how does this relate to your presentation in church this coming Sunday? Is this, <laughs> That's a good question. Because I'm asking well, litur- liturgy now. <laughs> yeah, I didn't, I didn't touch the New Testament uh, gospel because it's, it's a wormhole. It's a favorite passage of mine, and we could have spent an, an entire hour on it. Mm-hmm. It's actually the calling of Nathaniel in John chapter 2. Well, let's do that. Right. Can, we, can we do that next week? Because I hate to we lose We could. Yeah. yeah, Nathaniel's call. Because here we're talking about Samuel's call in 1 Samuel 3. And it mirrors Nathaniel's call in John 2. Because Nathaniel is awaiting the Messiah. He's, a, a, by Jesus' own confession, here's an Israelite in whom there is no deceit, in whom there is no guile. Nathaniel's most likely praying under the fig tree, waiting on the consummation of all things. And Jesus, being God, sees him there. And so Jesus calls him. Jesus calls him to follow him. And there, there are allusions to, to Jacob's ladder in that passage. The ladder, angels descending and ascending on the Son of Man, Jesus tells Nathaniel. And so the calling, I mean, we're really talking about calling. And what is calling? It's God speaking and us listening to what God is saying to us and calling us to do. Samuel listened, and we would do well to listen, especially in election year, to keep mm. Jesus as our king and uh, and to look at him first as our king, not our political party, but our religious convictions. And again, Robbie reminds us how intimately connected are the so-called Old and New Testament. Um, it's one Bible. And you need to look at it that way. And read those footnotes you see in the in in the New Testament. Understand that if the it refers you to an Old Testament quote and it reads a little differently, it's because your Old Testament probably was translated from Hebrew and not from Greek. So if you see differences, don't let it be a stumbling block to you. Um, you need to to know and have both in your heart to understand this whole magnificent story of um, God's love for us. Robbie, thanks so much. Robbie, again, the executive director of Preserving Bible Times. You did a great job on the newsletter today. Just came out, just entered my email box. Got a look at that and, uh, and some, some super work. You can sign up for the newsletter. Robbie publishes that once, twice, sometimes three times a month. Uh, PreservingBibleTimes.org is the website. It doesn't cost you a thing. It'll just magically appear in your email. And you'll uh, you'll you'll be uh, you'll you marvel at what, at what Preserving Bible Times has to offer in the way of uh, teaching us how to read between the lines of the Bible. Robbie, have a, have a wonderful week, and Happy New Year. We will we'll see you next week. Joy and a privilege to be on the broken road with you, Jim and David. Godspeed. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.